Part Five, Chapter One of O Pioneers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. O Pioneers by Willa Cather, Part Five, Alexandra, Chapter One. Ivar was sitting at a cobbler's bench in the barn, mending harness by the light of a lantern, and repeating to himself the one hundred and first psalm. It was only five o'clock of a mid-October day, but a storm had come up in the afternoon, bringing black clouds, a cold wind, and torrents of rain. The old man wore his buffalo-skin coat, and occasionally stopped to warm his fingers at the lantern. Suddenly a woman burst into the shed as if she had been blown in, accompanied by a shower of raindrops. It was Signa, wrapped in a man's overcoat and wearing a pair of boots over her shoes. In time of trouble, Signa had come back to stay with her mistress, for she was the only one of the maids from whom Alexandra would accept much personal service. It was three months now since the news of the terrible thing that had happened in Frank Shabata's orchard had first run like a fire over the divide. Signa and Nelsa were staying on with Alexandra until winter. Ivar, Signa exclaimed as she wiped the rain from her face, "Do you know where she is?" The old man put down his cobbler's knife. "Who, the mistress?" "Yes." She went away about three o'clock. I happened to look out of the window and saw her going across the fields in her thin dress and sun hat. And now this storm has come on. I thought she was going to Mrs. Hiller's, and I telephoned as soon as the thunder stopped. But she had not been there. I'm afraid she is out somewhere and will get her death of cold. Ivar put on his cap and took up the lantern. Ya, ya, we will see. I will hitch the boy's mare to the cart and go. Signa followed him across the wagon shed to the horse's stable. She was shivering with cold and excitement. Where do you suppose she can be, Ivar? The old man lifted a set of single harness carefully from its peg. How should I know? But you think she is at the graveyard, don't you? Signa persisted. So do I. Oh, I wish she would be more like herself. I can't believe it's Alexandra Bergson come to this with no head about anything. I have to tell her when to eat and when to go to bed. Patience, patience, sister," muttered Ivar as he settled the bit in the horse's mouth. "When the eyes of the flesh are shut, the eyes of the spirit are open. She will have a message from those who are gone, and that will bring her peace. Until then, we must bear with her. You and I are the only ones who have weight with her." She trusts us. How awful it's been these last three months! Signa held the lantern so that he could see to buckle the straps. It don't seem right that we must all be so miserable. Why do we all have to be punished? Seems to me like good times would never come again. Ivar expressed himself in a deep sigh, but said nothing. He stooped and took a sandbur from his toe. Ivar. Signa asked suddenly, "Will you tell me why you go barefoot? All the time I lived here in the house, I wanted to ask you: Is it for a penance or what?" "No, sister. It is for the indulgence of the body. From my youth up, I have had a strong, rebellious body, and have been subject to every kind of temptation. 
even in age my temptations are prolonged. It was necessary to make some allowances, and the feet, as I understand it, are free members. There is no divine prohibition for them in the Ten Commandments. The hands, the tongue, the eyes, the heart, all the bodily desires we are commanded to subdue, but the feet are free members. I indulge them without harm to any one, even to trampling in filth when my desires are low. They are quickly cleaned again. Signa did not laugh. She looked thoughtful as she followed Ivar out to the wagon-shed and held the shafts up for him, while he backed in the mare and buckled the hold-backs. "'You have been a good friend to the mistress, Ivar,' she murmured. "'And you, God be with you,' replied Ivar, as he clambered into the cart and put the lantern under the oilcloth lap-cover. "'Now for a ducking, my girl,' he said to the mare, gathering up the reins. As they emerged from the shed, a stream of water, running off the thatch, struck the mare on the neck. She tossed her head indignantly, then struck out bravely on the soft ground, slipping back again and again as she climbed the hill to the main road. Between the rain and the darkness Ivar could see very little, so he let Emil's mare have the rain, keeping her head in the right direction. When the ground was level he turned her out of the dirt-road upon the sod, where she was able to trot without slipping. Before Ivar reached the graveyard, three miles from the house, the storm had spent itself, and the downpour had died into a soft, dripping rain. The sky and the land were a dark smoke-colour, and seemed to be coming together, like two waves. When Ivar stopped at the gate and swung out his lantern, a white figure rose from beside John Bergson's white stone. The old man sprang to the ground and shuffled toward the gate, calling, "'Mistress! Mistress!' Alexandra hurried to meet him and put her hand on his shoulder. "'Tist! Ivar! There's nothing to be worried about. I'm sorry if I've scared you all. I didn't notice the storm till it was on me, and I couldn't walk against it. I'm glad you've come. I am so tired I didn't know how I'd ever get home.' Ivar swung the lantern up so that it shone in her face. "'Good! You are enough to frighten us, mistress. You look like a drowned woman. How could you do such a thing?' Groaning and mumbling, he led her out of the gate, and helped her into the cart, wrapping her in the dry blankets on which he had been sitting. Alexandra smiled at his solicitude. "'Not much in that, Ivar. You will only shut the wet in. I don't feel so cold now, but I'm heavy and numb.' I'm glad you came. Ivar turned the mare and urged her into a sliding trot. Her feet sent back a continual spatter of mud. Alexandra spoke to the old man as they jogged along through the sullen grey twilight of the storm. Ivar, I think it has done me good to get cold clear through like this once. I don't believe I shall suffer so much any more. When you get so near to the dead— they seem more real than the living. Worldly thoughts leave one. Ever since Emil died I've suffered so when it rained. Now that I've been out in it with him, I shan't dread it. After you once get cold clear through, the feeling of rain on you is sweet. It seems to bring back feelings you had when you were a baby. It carries you back into the dark before you were born. You can't see things, but they come to you somehow, and you know them, and aren't afraid of them. Maybe it's like that with the dead. 
If they feel anything at all, it's the old things, before they were born, that comfort people like the feeling of their own bed does when they are little. Mistress, said Ivar reproachfully, those are bad thoughts. The dead are in paradise. Then he hung his head, for he did not believe that Emil was in paradise. When they got home, Signa had a fire burning in the sitting-room stove. She undressed Alexandra and gave her a hot foot-bath, while Ivar made ginger tea in the kitchen. When Alexandra was in bed, wrapped in hot blankets, Ivar came in with his tea and saw that she drank it. Signa asked permission to sleep on the slat-lounge outside her door. Alexandra endured their attentions patiently, but she was glad when they put out the lamp and left her. As she lay alone in the dark, it occurred to her for the first time that perhaps she was actually tired of life. All the physical operations of life seemed difficult and painful. She longed to be free from her own body, which ached and was so heavy, and longing itself was heavy. She yearned to be free of that. As she lay with her eyes closed, she had again, more vividly than for many years, the old illusion of her girlhood, of being lifted and carried lightly by someone very strong. He was with her a long while this time, and carried her very far, and in his arms she felt free from pain. When he laid her down on her bed again, she opened her eyes, and, for the first time in her life, she saw him, saw him clearly, though the room was dark and his face was covered. He was standing in the doorway of her room. His white cloak was thrown over his face, and his head was bent a little forward. His shoulders seemed as strong as the foundations of the world. His right arm, bared from the elbow, was dark and gleaming, like bronze, and she knew at once that it was the arm of the mightiest of all lovers. She knew at last for whom it was she had waited— and where he would carry her. That, she told herself, was very well. Then she went to sleep. Alexandra wakened in the morning with nothing worse than a hard cold and a stiff shoulder. She kept her bed for several days, and it was during that time that she formed a resolution to go to Lincoln to see Frank Shabata. Ever since she last saw him in the courtroom, Frank's haggard face and wild eyes had haunted her. The trial had lasted only three days. Frank had given himself up to the police in Omaha, and pleaded guilty of killing without malice and without premeditation. The gun was, of course, against him, and the judge had given him the full sentence—ten years. He had now been in the state penitentiary for a month. Frank was the only one, Alexandra told herself, for whom anything could be done— he had been less in the wrong than any of them, and he was paying the heaviest penalty. She often felt that she herself had been more to blame than poor Frank. From the time the Shabbatas had first moved to the neighboring farm, she had omitted no opportunity of throwing Marie and Emil together. Because she knew Frank was surly about doing little things to help his wife, she was always sending Emil over to spade or plant or carpenter for Marie. She was glad to have Emil see as much as possible of an intelligent, city-bred girl like their neighbor. She noticed that it improved his manners. She knew that Emil was fond of Marie, but it had never occurred to her that Emil's feelings might be different from her own. She wondered at herself now, but she had never thought of danger in that direction. 
If Marie had been unmarried, oh, yes, then she would have kept her eyes open. But the mere fact that she was Shabata's wife, for Alexandra, settled everything. That she was beautiful, impulsive, barely two years older than Emil, these facts had had no weight with Alexandra. Emil was a good boy, and only bad boys ran after married women. Now Alexandra could, in a measure, realize that Marie was, after all, Marie, not merely a married woman. Sometimes, when Alexandra thought of her, it was with an aching tenderness. The moment she had reached them in the orchard that morning, everything was clear to her. There was something about those two lying in the grass, something in the way Marie had settled her cheek on Emil's shoulder, that told her everything. She wondered then how they could have helped loving each other, how she could have helped knowing that they must. Emil's cold, frowning face, the girl's content. Alexandra had felt awe of them, even in the first shock of her grief. The idleness of those days in bed, the relaxation of body which attended them, enabled Alexandra to think more calmly than she had done since Emil's death. She and Frank, she told herself, were left out of that group of friends who had been overwhelmed by disaster. She must certainly see Frank Shabata. Even in the courtroom, her heart had grieved for him. He was in a strange country, he had no kinsmen or friends, and in a moment he had ruined his life. Being what he was, she felt, Frank could not have acted otherwise. She could understand his behavior more easily than she could understand Marie's. Yes, she must go to Lincoln to see Frank Shabata. The day after Emil's funeral, Alexandra had written to Carl Lindstrom, a single page of notepaper, a bare statement of what had happened. She was not a woman who could write much about such a thing, and about her own feelings she could never write very freely. She knew that Carl was away from post-offices, prospecting somewhere in the interior. Before he started he had written her where he expected to go, but her ideas about Alaska were vague. As the weeks went by and she heard nothing from him, it seemed to Alexandra that her heart grew hard against Carl. She began to wonder whether she would not do better to finish her life alone. What was left of life seemed unimportant. End of chapter 1 of part 5